0: This is Gynecologic Surgeons Unscrubbed, a series-based podcast focusing on surgical and medical education and featuring expert interviews and practice-changing discussion. Our host is Dr. Kara King, a member of the Cleveland Clinic's section of Minimally Invasive Gynecologic Surgery. Dr. King is also the director of Benign Gynecologic Surgery and associate program director of the Cleveland Clinic's MIGS Fellowship. This podcast is a collaboration between MD Edge and and the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons. We'll be right back after this message.
1: This podcast is made possible by Boston Scientific. To learn more about Boston Scientific, please visit bostonscientific.com. The opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the featured clinicians and do not necessarily reflect the views of Boston Scientific. I am really excited to have Dr. Sarah Cohen on our Unscrubbed episode today. She is one of my favorite people and has been one of my role models since we met many years back. She is currently up in Rochester, and she is a senior associate consultant at the Mayo Clinic Rochester. She actually just recently moved there from Boston. She completed her OBGYN residency at Johns Hopkins, followed by a fellowship in minimally invasive gynecologic surgery at Brigham and Women's. I am having her on today to discuss the recent guidelines that she and her committee members created about surgical safety safety in the state of our current COVID pandemic. So without further ado, welcome Dr. Cohen and thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thank you so much, Kara. I'm really honored to be speaking with you. Yes, absolutely. So let's just start out by talking about your committee. So Who was
1: on your committee, and how did you guys work to create the guidelines that you created? And also, thank you so much for your work. I know the entire GYN community is really craving these type of guidelines, so thank you so much.
0: Yeah, so I think it's really important because if you read the AHL listserv, or if you just sort of read, you know, Bloomberg or the news, surgeons are really wondering what's going on with this, and people are nervous, and you want to take care of patients, but you also want to be safe for yourself and your family. And throughout this whole process, I think Jubilee Brown, our AGL president, has really shown incredible leadership and guidance in terms of steering us. And she brought the issue to the board of directors at our recent call that we should create some guidelines and try to collaborate with other societies to try to get some information out there. You know, there's not a lot of data to guide us, but just to tell people, here's what we're thinking about. Here's what you should be incorporating into practice.
1: And just starting that discussion, just like you said, I think, I mean, a lot of this is going to be expert opinion for the short term, because there's not a lot of evidence based medicine out there yet, but we have to start somewhere. So I'm really happy that you're helping lead that charge with Jubilee. It's amazing. So who else was on your committee,
0: Sarah? So this was the entire AGL Board of Directors. We all collaborated, and there's some folks from all over the world on our board, which is really helpful because some of them have experience with a little farther along in the pandemic than we might have in, for example, Minnesota. So it's been really useful to leverage their experience and our colleagues from all over. But it was really the Board of Directors that crafted this. And then we reached out to the sister societies. I think there's about five societies that have signed on to it. And so all of us collaborated to make the final guidance.
1: I'm so happy that you included the other societies as well, you know, stronger together. I think siloing us can be really hard sometimes. I think the collaboration is really where we need to be right now.
0: Exactly. And we don't want to have mixed messages to our membership as well in terms of, well, one person said this, another person said something a little different.
1: A unified front. Yes. There's enough anxiety already out there about a lot of different messages. So a unified front here is really powerful. Definitely. So I think laparoscopy is unique, I guess kind of unique in this face of COVID, just because of the nature of the surgery that we're performing. And I think a lot of the concern and anxiety that's coming out of laparoscopy, which is what we base our careers on, is this potential viral transmission during the use of laparoscopy and the virus actually being within that
0: pneumoperitoneum and then being released into everybody in the operating room. Is that right? Exactly. So that's the concern, which at this time is still theoretical, but it's still very scary. And, you know, all of us are committed to using minimally invasive principles whenever possible. We really believe that it's best for the patient in many cases, but we also want to be aware that there's some potential risk to these technologies You know, at this time, it's known that the surgical devices, the electrosurgical instruments and the ultrasonic instruments could aerosolize viral particles. That's been shown in other viruses that it's present in surgical smoke. But what's not known is if that then translates into being infectious. So we know that it's possible and it's theoretically certainly concerning, but it hasn't been proven either in COVID or in other respiratory illnesses like influenza or tuberculosis when patients have had abdominal operations. It hasn't been definitively shown to be infectious to the operating room personnel, but it certainly is a concern. So
1: in this early stages of us all trying to figure out exactly how much this virus can be transferred through this pneumoperitoneum. It it sounds like it makes sense for us to err on the side of
0: being very cautious. And that's what the guidance that we produced came out with. You know, at this point, we don't want to say that laparoscopy should be completely outlawed. There are certainly patients for whom laparoscopy is far safer than laparotomy. And when you also think about putting patients through a prolonged hospitalization after surgery um, with a laparotomy that could then, you know, give them, propensity to get more nosocomial infections. And, you know, that sort of is all a huge downstream effect on our resources. So we're not trying to take away the option for laparoscopy, but really until we have more data, just being as careful as we can with minimizing the risk of exposing staff to the surgical plume. And like you
1: said, it's not just a surgeon, it's the entire operating room team. So the last thing we want is to take out entire teams at once if this is really transmissible through the air. So- At this point, you're talking about different types of electrosurgical devices, right? So we're talking about bipolar and monopolar, harmonic laser, and all of these different modalities we think can, in turn, spread this virus. So if we're worried about those devices
0: laparoscopically, it would make theoretical
1: sense that open surgery could also have its risks. Is that right?
0: Exactly. And so I think it's important not to just take a knee-jerk reaction against laparoscopy because we really need to be careful with all of our surgical approaches. The advantage of some of the vaginal or laparotomy approaches is that there's a lot of techniques to do dissection and um, coagulation control without electrosurgery, whereas we really do rely on that pretty heavily in minimally invasive procedures although certainly there's ways to do it without it as well. So I think, you know, if you're doing open procedures, don't assume that that minimizes your risk down to nothing. I would still recommend things like the smoke filtration evacuation systems, using a suction device if you don't have a higher level filter, and then also minimizing the use of electrosurgery and making sure to minimize smoke production as well. So I've been getting a lot of
1: questions just like you inferred with this knee-jerk reaction, like "Mm, no more laparoscopy. We need to be doing all of our cases open. That's the safest for us. But I appreciate your outlook in that. This is like so many layers up. If we do an open approach, that means that the patient's in-house longer. They're utilizing more resources in that way. At the same time, we have to be safe ourselves. So there's just so many layers to this. I'm glad that these discussions are happening.
0: It's really hard for us as uh, medical professionals because we are trained to think of the patient first, and it almost feels selfish to think about, what about me getting sick? But it's not really selfish. You know, we're actually important members of the healthcare team that if we're taken out, then there's going to be less people to help take care of these patients. We also have to think about our families and the community at large. So I think it's important to really balance, obviously, the patient comes first, but it's not selfish to think of the healthcare team as well.
1: That was so eloquently put. <laughs> Thanks. I love your words. See, this is why Sarah is one of my role models and mentors, because of words like that. Because I think we're all thinking that, like, patients should come first. MIS is best. That's what I should be doing. But if we're all taken out, then there's
0: not anyone to even do open procedures. And I think it's also important as a minimally invasive surgeon, I often feel like it's a failure when I have to open or if I do a, a laparotomy. But I think we should think outside of the box in these cases. So um, something that I don't do very often is mini-lapse, or you know, maybe some of us don't use vaginal hysterectomy as, as often. Now, obviously, we're only really doing emergent or urgent cases. So thinking about the types of cases we're doing, if you have a torsion or an ectopic in the appropriate patient, could that be done with regional anesthesia and a mini-lap? And that could actually maybe be better You know, when you're discussing with your anesthesia colleagues to avoid the aerosol generalization of intubation, extubation. So it's just important. I don't know that that's a one-size-fits-all approach for everything, but just sort of thinking outside the box of what else can we be doing to minimize our risks that's also beneficial to the patient.
1: Really good point as well. And that open doesn't have to be a huge fan and steel or a huge vertical, right? It's amazing what you can do through three centimeters, right? Especially with these new wound retractors that we have, you can actually do a lot through just a couple centimeters and patients still go
0: home same day. So that, that could certainly be an option. And the advantage of that is that it's quite difficult to do laparoscopy with regional anesthesia, not impossible, but not something most of us are used to doing.
1: Right, yeah, very, very, very good thoughts.
0: We'll be right back after this message.
1: Today's episode is brought to you by MedJobNetwork.com. Ready to start your career in your dream location? Looking to expand your skills in a dynamic new practice setting? Start your search today at MedJobNetwork.com. MedJobNetwork.com sorts thousands of physician job opportunities in every specialty and all 50 states. Visit us once, create a profile, then let our technology bring the right jobs to you. There's no need to search again and again. Medjobnetwork.com does all the work for you. It's time to take that next step. There's a great new career opportunity waiting for you at Medjobnetwork.com. So, my next question has to do with COVID testing. So, obviously, operating on somebody who's COVID positive has this, a whole slew of concerns. But there's also this population of people that we just don't know if they're positive. And the resources for us to test, the amount of time it takes to get a test back, the false positive rate, all those things need to come into play. So in your opinion, should we be treating all patients like they are COVID positive? Or how, how can you help guide us in regard to gauging risk in these surgeries?
0: Yeah. So I think that's really difficult because there's two different ways to approach it. The first way would be what's ideal. And then the second way is, well, what can we actually do on the ground today? So I think there's really no question that under ideal circumstances, we should have a rapid, reliable test that's widely available. And in that case, we should give it universally for all surgical patients. I think right now, a lot of us have limitations regarding that. And so I think, you know, if it's not feasible to universally test patients, it might be better to treat as presumed positive until ruled out. Again, assuming that you have enough resources and PPE to do so. I know some locations are having to sort of risk stratify and, you know, preserve their PPE for the at-risk or highly suspicious cases. So I think it's difficult to answer because it really does depend on a lot of different factors about your local resources. And then there's also some concerns about how soon the viral PCR will turn positive in terms of the testing. So some people might be infectious but be earlier in the course of their disease and come up with a negative test. So some colleagues in China and Europe that have been doing surgery at a little bit more of the epicenter of the um, pandemics have actually proposed using CT scanning either instead of or in addition to the viral testing, because they found that it may have a little bit better reliability, especially early in disease. So there's actually some articles out of China that are suggesting universal chest CT before surgery, with the idea being that if you are able to delay a case for someone that has an evolving pneumonia or pulmonary symptoms that you may need to, um, you may find that on CT, but not the nasal swabs.
1: Really interesting. So alternate tests outside of the COVID testing that would be indicative of likely disease. This is obviously a global issue, and so reaching out to countries who have unfortunately gone through this before us is critical in this time coming together right now. So it, it sounds like at the current juncture, and again, we're recording this on March 27, things change by the day. So at the current juncture, it sounds like the safest way to handle surgery is just to assume that your patient is COVID positive, to keep everybody as safe as possible. What are your thoughts regarding the personal protective equipment that we should be wearing and our staff and our, you know, our colleagues should be wearing in the operating room?
0: So I think this is important to work with our both local, institutional, and regional, national, global colleagues about this you know, we need to talk with our staff in virology infection control about what actually is the best. I know there's some discussion about how much protection the N95 mask gives versus is it any better than a regular surgical mask or should we be using those uh, more extensive respirators? And I think that's a little beyond my pay grade in terms of specific masks, but I I do believe we should be following full PPE precautions, uh, whatever that means at your local institution, working with anesthesia and the infection control folks in terms of how to handle The aerosol generating procedures so is there a certain waiting time a lot of people are proposing about 20 minutes of waiting time after intubation and after extubation before allowing general staff into the room because that's the highest risk of aerosolization of virus Um, and then other things like just minimizing staff exchange minimizing people in and out of the room having only essential people be there so minimizing trainees or students uh, things like that will all be really useful
1: And, you know, I think back about me operating just a couple months ago when these things weren't actively in my mind and how many times I'm leaking CO2 throughout the case, right? I'm like on purpose, (laughs) like letting some of the pneumo leak when I have too much plume because of my monopolar or using my suction irrigator a lot and um, or leaking around my ports or things that could potentially be circulating the virus these days. So in regard to some of those issues, I'm just curious about equipment. So trocar wise, do you think there's any benefit to using trocars that have like fixation systems to minimize leak? Or do you think that's not really an issue?
0: I mean, I think if that's available at your hospital, it certainly is worth using. I don't know that that's the only answer. Certainly making sure that your incision size is appropriate and you're not going to have air leaking around your trocar site. You know, sometimes we'll have to suture or in some way close the skin incision if it is leaking. So I think there's a lot of workarounds for using, but certainly making sure that the trocars you're using, if they're reusable, don't have leaks in the cannula themselves would be important. Um, And then like you said, just being really conscious, like a lot of us vent into the external room as part of our regular practice, but just being really conscious about not doing that and then desufflating the abdomen by whatever means you have, if you have a smoke evacuation device or if you have just a regular suction to actually have the least possible amount of CO2 escaping into the air.
1: So basically rethinking every step every move you make, making sure
0: it's optimized. Right. I think that's necessary.
1: Yeah. So I want to tap your brain just a little bit about surgical masks. I think this is one of the more prominent topics that I've been hearing come up most recently in regard to just regular surgical masks or the N95s or the PAPRs, the powered air purifying respirators. What are your thoughts regarding what masks we should be wearing in the operating room right now?
0: Yeah, I think that's really confusing for a lot of us. And it's very easy to understand the impetus to want to wear the biggest, best possible mask. But there is some data that came out in a JAMA article from this fall looking at influenza patients, and they actually randomized nurses to the N95 versus a traditional surgical mask. And this wasn't for specifically laparoscopic surgery, but just general patient care with known infectious influenza patients. And they actually did not show any benefit to the N95. N95 for that respiratory spread. So it's really unknown, I think, in terms of how much advantage the N95 gives. At least it's unknown to me. So I think that's where we have to collaborate with our colleagues in infectious disease and virology to really get the best understanding of how to protect ourselves.
1: Yeah, I think just like you said, the evidence isn't out there quite yet. So a lot of us are just trying to collaborate and figure this out as we go until we have more research that's out there. So is there anything else that I missed that you think is important for us to know from your committee or from your experience about
0: this pandemic state of COVID and, and surgery? Well, I think just, you know, it is really frustrating and challenging for us because it does seem like things are changing Every hour, every day, you know, there's new updates and suggestions. And I think turning to our national and international societies for guidance is really useful. We're going to keep updating the AGL joint statement guidance as more data comes out. So that'll hopefully be a good source of information for folks. And just relying on each other and our colleagues in these times and just knowing that we're all going through this together, um, some of us earlier than others, but we can lean on our global colleagues, like you mentioned, and gain experience from them.
1: Really, really excellent work. Well, thank you, Sarah, so much for joining us today. I really appreciate all the hard work that you put into this really great committee guideline. I think it's gonna be an amazing resource for all of us. And we're thinking about you up in Rochester over the next couple of weeks as we all battle this.
0: Thank you so much, Kara. I appreciate it.
1: And that's all for this episode of Gynecologic Surgeons Unscrubbed. Join us next episode for more expert insights and perspectives. From all of us at MD Edge and the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons, thanks for listening.